I'd ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews as we uh, start a journey together. And I'm going to read uh, the first four verses, which in the original Greek are one long sentence. And uh, I've been told that whenever you preach, you should try to have your sermon be in line with the word of God and the message that is contained in the text that you are reading. So I was contemplating uh, trying to write a sermon that was one long sentence. <laughs> but, of course, I digest. But let's turn to God's word. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's uh, bow together and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we're so thankful for your word and the way that you have put it together for us to know all the things that we need to know to know you. And Lord, as we contemplate these verses this morning, we ask for your spirit to be working in our hearts. We pray that uh, you would put a guard on my lips that I would not say anything that is not appropriate to your word, but Lord, may your word be held up as supreme and precious in our lives as it is the revelation of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen. As I mentioned, uh, these verses continuing on into verse 4 are actually one long sentence and it's really an introduction of uh, the themes that are throughout the book and as we see it begins with that phrase God who at sundry times God is the subject of the uh, first two verses and then it makes a transition in verse 3 where Jesus is the subject. First of all, we see that God is the one who speaks. And he speaks at sundry times. Now what does that mean? It actually isn't referring just to particular time frames, though we can see that when we look in the scriptures, we can see that God spoke at specific times. But there were times when he didn't speak. For example, if you would turn to 1 Samuel 3, the first verse. You don't need to turn there, but if you did, you would see that uh, Samuel was ministering before Eli, and it was said that the word of the Lord, in the King James it says, were precious during those times. And another way of translating that is that they were rare. The word of the Lord was rare. So there are times throughout our history when God's word seems to be silent 
Sometimes you might experience that in your life where you're even reading God's word and it doesn't seem to be speaking to you. So there are, have been those times and there continue to be those times in our personal walk with the Lord. So that sundry times refers to that kind of thing where actually at certain times God's speaking very clearly and at other times he seems to be silent. But he has been speaking and he's been speaking in the King James Version, it says, diverse manners, or you could say in a variety of ways. So God has been speaking at different epochs in history. There were, for example, also the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New. But he has always been speaking and guiding history towards the purposes that he wants the world to move towards. Some of the device, diverse manners or the various ways that he's been speaking are talked about throughout the book of Hebrews. For example, there's the story of Melchizedek, which, uh, Lord willing, we're going to get to that. And there's, he continues to go on through many, like a plethora, really, of uh, Old Testament characters that he's going to talk about. Those are and he spoke to all these different individuals in different ways. Sometimes he spoke through dreams. Sometimes he spoke through visions. Sometimes he spoke directly to people and basically almost like dictated words to them. Uh, you can see that if you read in uh, Jeremiah, how he basically directed Baruch to write out the words that God had told him. So these words are written out verbatim. If, and then... There's actually a funny story that follows that. Uh, the scroll is taken to the officials, eventually gets to the king, and the king is listening to the scroll being read. These are the words of God, right? Dictated to the prophet and then written down by his scribe. And here's the king reading this, and he's turning against God, so he takes the scroll and he starts cutting off pieces and burning it in the fire. And, of course, that's, like, blasphemous behavior but at the same time it's actually kind of funny because this is God's word you think burning a scroll is going to get rid of God's word no because as you can see later in the book then God just directs Jeremiah to just write it again and he actually gives him additional words so you can't just take God's word and burn it you can burn a book a physical book but God's word stands forever and even in all these diverse manners that he communicates it, it's always his word, and it's, as we see in the book of Hebrews later on, God's word is immutable. In other words, it doesn't change. You can't change God's word by how you treat the physical book. And of course, uh, God is not only just working through uh, the actual reading of his word and the communication of his word. As we, if you look throughout the history of the scriptures, you see that there is a history. It used to be talked of in the terms of his story. This is what the Bible is. It's God's story that he works out through the lives of his people. And in the book of Hebrews, we're going to see in particular that he has called specific people. We sang about Abraham. Abraham is the God who moved him 
And it said, I think in the song, something like, Abraham's God and my God. And that is actually a remarkable phrase that God spoke through the prophets and to the fathers. He spoke to Abraham. He called this man who was, you know, some unknown individual in a deserted area of the world in a sense. You know, like we think of it as deserted, though, of course, back then it was... um, the birth of civilization where God put people. But here's this individual, Abraham, called out of the Ur of Chaldees. And God doesn't call everybody. He calls this one particular man, Abraham, and he says, here, come here and do this. And this has happened thousands and thousands of years ago. But yet this man, Abraham, in a very real sense throughout the scriptures, is the father of Christianity. And the song says, Abraham, Abraham's God and my God. And Hebrews is really about how do we understand all that and how do we keep that way of knowing God in tension between the traditions and the customs of the Israelite people and what happened as we will see later when Jesus Christ came. And so all those diverse manners of of God speaking, particularly in his calling a certain people to himself, is what is in view here in the very first verse of our text. And I have to mention, and uh, Emil actually already uh, mentioned it as well, the road to Emmaus. And here, here, the, here are these individuals walking along the road to Emmaus after the Lord's death, and they're like, we thought this guy was going to save us. We thought he was going to lead us to the new land, perhaps. But they were in the land already, but you know what I mean, right? They wanted a new kingdom to be raised up that would throw, throw out the Romans and give them the life that they wanted. And then suddenly someone appears alongside them and starts asking them what they're talking about, and they, they essentially complain to Jesus. They're complaining to the God who created them and the one who holds the world in his hand, as we're going to see even in our text later on. They're complaining to him that he didn't do things right, essentially what they're doing, that he, in his coming and in his dying, he should have stayed. He should have stayed and raised up an army, perhaps, and given them the new kingdom that they wanted. And then Jesus does that, one of the most exciting things in the New Testament. He rebukes them, first of all, for their foolishness. And then he says, how about I take you through all the prophets, from Moses to the prophets, and show you everything that's written about the Christ? And I'm speculating here, of course, but I'm like, did some of that get written down? Did somebody, did Cleopas tell that to somebody? And that's somehow how Hebrews, how we got Hebrews, but we don't know that. And we could go into a discussion about the authorship, but just um, we know that it's God's word. The reason why people often argued about authorship in the past was because, you know, we have certain standards about what kind of books we're going to accept. And 
One of them is that it should be written by someone who was there. And so it's, it would be nice if we could say without a doubt that Hebrews is, was written by Paul, for example. And many have argued that, and many have argued against it. But we know for sure that it is God's word, and it is immutable and dependable. It's still there. So obviously God wanted it to be there. I think uh, Paul says that it was Paul. But uh, I think, you know, after reading through it quite a few times, like I was saying, Paul asked me, well, do you th- what do you think? And I'm like, oh, I don't think it was Paul. And uh, then after reading through it quite a few times over the last couple of weeks, I'm like, you know, this is, this is like a sermon, and it sounds a lot like Paul. <laughs> but anyways... Um, I think you could still make an argument that is Paul. <laughs> so all that was basically to kind of illustrate the fact that God in those diverse manners and different var- various ways is actually working history through these relationships that he has with people. So he's working in people like Abraham. He's going to show that throughout the book how important uh, Abraham was and is and how important Moses is and all those things will come out as we uh, look through the book of Hebrews and of course we can't uh, forget that God also instituted an entire method of worshipping him there's an elaborate worship system like there's, there's books and what is there? Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you know, like, and they go through all the fine details of how you approach God. You can't, not just anyone, and not in just any manner, can you approach this holy God. So all those things are going to be discussed by the author of Hebrews, as Lord willing, we continue that in the months ahead. And, uh, if you want to keep hearing things that the Lord gives me to say. (laughs) So, as we look at that, we then look at verse 2 where it says, Hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. In these last days. There's a new era. There's a new beginning. And the last day phrase, we could talk about that, uh, but I specifically kind of avoided it because uh, it's controversial. So maybe, uh, maybe Paul can deal with that one one time. But it, but it is an indication that the author actually sees very clearly that there is a big difference between the era before Christ and the era after Christ. And even, of course, our calendar is marked B.C., A.D., even though uh, the world thinks, hey, there's no evidence for Jesus Christ. Well, hey, the calendar even, you know. (laughs) Before Christ and after Christ, there's a world of difference. It's a new era. We are in the last days. 
And that phrase in his, by his son, actually in the, in the Greek literally, it just says in son. There's no pronoun there. It's just in son. So there's a new way of revealing God's will. It's just in Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate revelation of God. There is no further or higher means of revealing God's will. And he, br he brings this out further by talking about what Jesus Christ himself has done. Now this, uh, this man, this God-man, is the one through whom he also made the worlds. This is similar language to uh, what we see in John 1, 3. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. There's, like I said, no higher state than to be the one who has made all things. If you're the one who made everything, you can't put anybody above you. And I purposely went to that phrase before I talked about being the heir of all things, because when someone's the heir, you sometimes think of them as being secondary to the one who is giving you the, the things that you're going to receive as the heir. But you can't put someone lower if he's the one who has created everything. Jesus Christ is the one through whom everything has been created. And at the same time, he is appointed heir. And the author here is referring not only to everything that's in creation, but he's referring in particular to all the things that are in the old covenant, all the promises that the prophets made, that the circumstances of God working history through Israel, that those look forward to. Jesus Christ is the heir of all these things. So the fulfillment of all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And he's saying that to us in that phrase, he is the heir of all things and he's also the creator of all the worlds. I guess it, it's probably appropriate to ask at this time too, how are you going to respond to the one who made you, the one who made us, the one who is the fulfillment of everything that God has done in the past and continues to do today? You know, he, he's always asking that question. Every day he's asking, what are you going to do today with the things that I have shown clearly in, your, in the word? I've shown that I'm the one who made everything and I'm the one who sustains you and gives you life. How are you going to react to that today? Will you repent and believe? That means will you not put yourself in charge of your life, but will you put God and his spirit through the word working in your life? Will you put that as a priority? And it's, it's more than even a daily thing. It is a moment-by-moment -moment thing. The believer is one who continues to repent. And it's like, you know, like, that's hard. 
Like, there's so many times, like, every day, when, oh, did I say that again? Did I have that attitude again? Did my heart really want that thing again? Do I have to? Do I have to say I'm sorry? Do I have to apologize? Do I have to ask for forgiveness again? You do. I do. The Lord Jesus Christ, the creator and sustainer of everything that you are, is worthy of it. And the people that he made that are around you, that he's calling out to be the Abrahams of today, to be the Moses of today, those people that are around you that you're affecting, that I'm affecting by the words that I say and the bad attitude that I have at times, those people are also worthy of you asking forgiveness from. If we sin against one another, we're sinning against everything that God is doing because he's particularly involved in the lives of every person on this planet, even those that are in rebellion against him. And that is sobering, but at the same time, that is a joyous thing to think about. That God himself is working history through various times and diverse manners. He's working history to his glory, to God's glory. Not ours, because we're not very glorious. But God is. God is great. And the author of Hebrews talks about God probably more than anybody in the New Testament, except maybe Romans. God is to be held up and to be praised continually, moment by moment, day by day. And that's one of the main points of Hebrews. God is a glorious God. And Jesus Christ is the revelation of that glory. Look at verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is the brightness of God's glory. Or you could translate it, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And this, this passage, the radiance of the glory of God, it just brought me back to 2 Corinthians. Chapter 3. It's a long passage. You should read it later on at home. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 4, 6. If you're taking notes, which some people do. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 4, 6. And Paul is talking about the difference between the old covenant when Moses, do you remember that? When he was, had to wear a veil? He had to wear a veil over his face after being in God's presence. 
But now in Christ, the veil is removed. We don't need to wear a veil. And Jesus is said to be the image of God. And then if you look in verse 6 of chapter 4, there's that beautiful phrase. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We can't actually see Jesus' face physically. But by the Spirit working in your heart and by the ministry of the Word, making that Word come alive as you understand who Jesus Christ is, you get a glimpse of his glory. And when you spend time with that Savior, with that glorious Savior, reflecting who God is and reflecting from within himself because he too is God, that glory can't help but rub off on you. And when that glory rubs off on you, that's a picture of what Jesus Christ does when he came and walked among us. The glory of God reflects into Jesus Christ, and when we look at Jesus Christ, the glory of Christ and of God reflects off of us to the world around us. And that is a glorious thing. Because then the gospel, the message, it actually has the glory of God attached to it. So that when we speak the love of Christ and the, and the words of Christ to the world around us, we're not just speaking them like a robot. We're speaking them because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. And we feel his love. And we feel his grace. And by the Spirit, it flows to the world around us. God who long ago said, let there be light, and the universe exploded with the brightness of his glory, through Christ now pours the light of God's glory into our hearts. And we're to be about that business. We're to be about that business of being changed. Changed into the image of Christ. I mentioned already that Jesus is the creator and the one who sustains us and gives us life. And it's kind of summed up in this phrase... Jesus is upholding all things by the word of his power. Now, in the ancient mythology, they had this uh, fellow named Atlas. You may have heard of him. He's kind of a big muscle guy. And we traditionally see him as uh, holding up the world, right? Which apparently, it's not the world he's holding up. I, I didn't know that. Uh, so when I just looked that up for a few minutes, that he's not, not holding up the world, he's actually holding up the sky. He's, because the ancient Greeks thought uh, you know, the sky had to be held in place so it wouldn't fall on them, I guess. But that's actually not what's going on here. It's not 
Jesus holding up the world in that manner. The word is actually a dynamic word, so it's like a word that con contains the idea of action, ongoing, time, time continuing on. So God is, Jesus Christ is holding up the world in that sense, where that it's a dynamic thing. He's keeping it moving. He's keeping things moving towards the end that God has in mind. And this actually goes perfectly with the uh, beginning of this passage where God spoke at sundry times and in diverse manners. We saw that God was working history towards a particular end. He was working history to the glorification of himself and the revelation of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is continuing that now when he's holding up the world he's holding it up in the sense that the universe is continuing to move forward towards the end that God has in mind so Jesus Christ is holding things together and keeping them moving different epochs of history and different time frames of history are, they're not just randomly happening this is God working all these things as we have already been talking about. He's working all things together by the power of his word to accomplish his purposes. That's what Jesus Christ is doing right now. He's moving things together to accomplish his purposes. And that... Uh, is actually somewhat amazing too in the sense in this particular passage he's sitting down when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high so Jesus Christ doesn't have to do anything active he can be sitting taking a position of rest but actually by his power he's not resting by doing nothing but he is actually sustaining everything and still moving things towards that particular end that God has in mind. I had a particular phrase from one of the commentators that I wanted to use here, but now I can't find it in my notes, but that's okay. We, then we come to the final the final phrase or segment of this passage when he had by himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high he himself purged our sins well if you think about the the book of Hebrews there's all kinds of purging things going on later in the book. You see that uh, the priests had to follow certain protocols. There were bl the blood of goats and bulls and calves. They had to be continually offered, night and day, it says. And this would never end. There were particular times when there was special feasts but they actually had sacrifices going on every day. 
people had to shed blood all the time because without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin the author of Hebrews will tell us later but Jesus Christ he just did it by himself he just did it by himself one time that was it big big difference between what was going on in the old covenant and what happens in Jesus Christ there's no need for continual sacrifices it's been done all the sacrifices are done away with later on near the end of the book the author's going to answer that well what kind of things are we going to do then well, you can just offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Okay, well, isn't there a thanksgiving offering that we can do then? Like, a, we, could we do a lamb, you know, roast it on a stick or whatever too, you know, maybe? Because they did actually eat those sacrifices, right? They had a, a lamb roast, right? Well, aren't we going to do that? No. No, we're not. Why? Jesus Christ already did it. He did it himself. We don't need any of those sacrifices anymore. Now all you have to do is be thankful. Just be thankful. Don't have to do an elaborate ceremony. Jesus Christ himself did it. And it's a done deal. There's no requirement to follow those laws anymore. It's, it's very, very encouraging to know that it's done. Nothing you can do. What was the LBC about? Nothing you can do. God's already done it. And that's why Jesus Christ takes that symbolic position of sitting down. He's sitting down in a position of power. The right hand of God is a position of power. It's finished. He's resting. And so then we, the the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about this in some detail, we then can rest. We don't work anymore for our salvation. And as we already mentioned a few times now, your works don't accomplish anything anyway. And then someone's going to say, well, shall we then just sin? Shall we just continue in sin then so that God's grace may abound? As Paul says in Romans 6, I think it is. Nope. Can't do that either. Do you love Jesus Christ? And you want to go on and sin? Like, what do you want to do? What do you really want to do? I do sin, but I don't want to sin. I trust you want the same thing, not to sin. But instead, 
to be doing what we were talking about earlier, reflecting the glory and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit working in you through the power of the word. That's kind of the the simple yet dynamic and complex nature of the Christian faith that all we have to do is be like Jesus. We just walk with him. And he has been always guiding things, guiding history, guiding people, guiding his specific people so that things work out for good. So when things around you appear not to be working out for good, you're actually looking at it wrong. I'm actually looking at it wrong when I complain about things because God is using all those things for his glory and for his good to work the character of Jesus Christ in you and in me. So together, let's keep working in the love of Christ and resting in the love of Christ. And so we'll keep intention, I guess, in our lives. The God of Abraham being my God. So the old, the old covenant isn't just No. All the lessons in history and the depth and the wonder and the glory of God as we see how he worked through the people of Israel and like I keep saying, those specific people, all that glorious history carries on into the new. And we keep that in our lives too. We see all those things that God has done And we know he wants to do similar things in our hearts. He wants us to be continually changed and made into the Lord Jesus Christ.